Father, we thank you, Lord, for your word, and we ask, Lord, that you would go before us, Lord, as we get into it, Lord. It's been a long week, and it's been a tough week. Uh, Boy, we have faced some issues this week, but Lord, we acknowledge the fact that you are God. We take a moment to recognize and remember that you are in the middle of everything, Lord, and the things that you allow, they're for your glory, they're for your purposes, for your purposes to be accomplished, Lord. Um, Lord, we thank you for everything that you've allowed uh, to take place. We thank you, Father, for the fact that you are sovereign and that we can rest in you and that we can know that you are completely and perfectly in control of each and every single one of these matters. And I pray, God, that the words that I share would be your words, Lord, and not mine, and that, Lord, you'd be glorified. And, Father, give me uh, the strength to get through the study, as, of course, I'm a bit under the weather. But, Lord, we're looking to you and asking, Lord, for your intervention, Lord, uh, the perfect miracle of your word in our lives, Lord, to just perfect us, make us more whole and complete in you. So, Lord, we love you. Go before us now. We ask these things in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, so we are in verse 18, and we start our letter to the church in Thyatira. And uh, of course, this is interesting because, as I had mentioned before, that the seven letters written to these seven churches uh, were very, very important letters. We believe that these letters, of course, well, we know these letters were written by Christ, and we know that Christ had instructed John to deliver these letters to the seven pastors of the seven churches. That's actually what I believe. I got into my reasons of that uh, when I did the introduction to these series. So if you want to go back and you want to look at this, but it is also interesting to note, and I will keep repeating this to you because I want you guys to have this embedded within your hearts that these letters are critically important and they're critically important for several reasons, right? The first reason why these letters were important was they had important messages to each of these churches for very specific special reasons that each of these churches were dealing with individually and uniquely. And what's interesting is when we consider that, we can also uh, learn from that because there are characteristics that are associated with all of these churches that we can grow from and we can learn from. And so we can learn when we see the communication that God is bringing to them concerning issues that were important to him regarding their actions of that time period, okay? Then the other reason why this is so important is because each of these churches represent different time periods, right? Uh, And of course, I had mentioned that to you guys prior. The first church that we went over, Ephesus, for example, would have started during the inception of the church, right from those uh, Acts passages that we read about early on in the book of Acts, all the way up until about 100 AD, maybe a little bit past that, somewhere around 110, 115 AD. And then, of course, when we get into the next churches, they represented other time periods. Now, what's interesting, when we get into the book of Thyatira or the letter to the church in Thyatira, they're not only going to represent a particular time period in the past, the time period that Thyatira represents started around 500 AD, right? But like uh, Thyatira and the next three churches, they start at a specific time, but still do not really end. Their characteristics don't seem to end until the current time. They carry into the current day. So Thyatira, of course, although it started in 500 AD, 
carries into the church of the current day. So they represent specific time periods and the time periods, which, which is the whole reason why I've entitled this message or entitled this series, The Church Age, represents what is referred to as the church age. Now, here's something else that's interesting and perhaps the most important reason why these letters are so powerful and these letters are so unique and these letters are so critical is because these letters were written directly to us. How do we know that? Because at each of these letters, it says, he who has an ear, let him hear, right? And how many ears do we have? That's right, we have two. So we need to be hearing what Jesus is saying to the church. We are the church, we should be listening, we should be speaking. Now, there are lots of people who will say that Thyatira does directly speak to the Catholic church. Um, and it is interesting to note the fact that Thyatira does speak of the period during church history that represents perhaps the darkest and, of course, the most corrupt. But I will tell you this. I will say if you do point out the fact that the church of Thyatira is a direct repudiation upon the actions of the Catholic Church early on within the church, I will say that the next letter that's going to be written actually speaks more to the Protestant Reformation. And so those that are Protestants get beat up and in many cases get beat up worse than Thyatira got beat up. So if you were to call one church representative of the Catholic Church and another church representative of the Protestants, I would just venture to say that these letters represent both okay these letters represent the whole church of Jesus Christ now don't get me wrong during the time period that Thyatira definitely represents uh, there were some really wicked things going on because the prominent church of the time was the Catholic church that in essence was the really the only the only mainstream church that existed and there were powerful men that were taking lots of money and they were buying their way into the into the papacy they become popes just by simply paying a fee uh, this was something that was going on in that time period and there was a lot of other wickedness that was taking place that was all being done in the name of money people were being persecuted that shouldn't have been persecuted there were people who were truly godly people who were being beat up that should not have been beat up right but this is this is typical of human nature right this isn't typical of any one church this is typical of how human beings will behave when they sort of bring into this uh mechanism this political machine that involves the desire for power that involves a desire for money, that involves a desire for recognition. So uh, really, truly, it should be noted as that. Now, here's a note about Thyatira as we get into this. Thyatira was perhaps the least significant city of all of the cities that we see here in Asia Minor. As a matter of fact, Thyatira was a bit of an armpit, for lack of a better term. It was a smaller city. It was not a very important city, although there was very there was one very unique variable about Thyatira, and that it was a, it was a very much of a working class city. And actually, they had people who assembled together in these types of guilds. We'll call them. They were sort of a uh, 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 they were called craftsmen guilds or trade guilds. And if you don't know what a craftsman a, a craftsman guild or a trade guild was, uh, back then it was only almost like a iron workers union or a carpenters union. And they would get together and there'd be lots of people who were in different crafts. And of course, if you worked on gold, there would be a gold workers guild. If you worked on brass, there was a brass workers guild. If you worked on iron, there was an iron workers
workers guild. And these guilds would meet in the temples, right? And of course, every city, insignificant or not, or uh, of great significance, all had temples built into them. And so uh, there were many temples and oftentimes to the same gods. Uh, Of course, there was a temple for Zeus in this city. There was a temple for Mars in this city. There was a temple, I think, for Mercury in this city. And um, they were small, of course, very, very small. They were insignificant. But within these temples, what would happen are these guilds would meet in the temples. And so just like uh, today, you know, if a homeowners association didn't have a place to meet and they wanted to meet, oftentimes they go to the local church to meet uh, because the church has a meeting place where people can gather and something like that. But in this context, the only place that you could meet would be in the temples. And so the guild workers would go and they would meet in the temples. Now, the bad part about that is they would sit around the table or they would sit around an eating area. And as they would sit around the eating area, they would start to eat together, but they would eat meat that was sacrificed to idols. And then oftentimes after they would eat, they would participate in the worship practices of that temple. And most of the time, the worship practices of that temple was illicit sexual behavior. So think about it. You know, you'd have the, you know, when someone back in those days would say, I'm going to go to a guild meeting, they're pretty much telling their family they were going to go participate in sexual activity, uh, illicit sexual activity. The prostitutes would be there and they would, uh, it was a bad place to go. There was nothing about it that was good, but it was a lot more socially acceptable back then because everybody said, well, I'm going to do, I have to do this because this is my job. This is what I do. This is what I do for a living. And so if I was a gold worker, I could not be a gold worker unless I was a member of the guild, but I couldn't be a member of the guild if I didn't go to the meetings, right? And so if I wasn't a member of the guild, I would get pretty much uh, uh, literally blackballed out of my community. I wouldn't be able to work. So I had to be a member of the guild. And as a member of the guild, I had to go to guild meetings. And if I wanted to be a recognized member of the guild within the guild meetings, then I had to do the things that everybody did within that community and within that context. And of course, that is such a horrible thing, but that is exactly how it worked. So these are all some things that are important for us to know as we get into this letter to the church in Thyatira. So let's look at it. And it says here in verse 18, it says, now unto the angel of the church in Thyatira, write, these things saith the son of God who hath eyes like unto a flame of fire and his feet are like fine brass. Okay, so let's talk about this for just a second. These things saith the son of God. I think it's important to understand that not only in Jewish culture and in Greek culture, when we talk about the son of anything, you carry the characteristic of the parent, okay? So for example, if, uh, if I walked into a room back in this day and I said, um, you are the son of a policeman, then unfortunately, uh, you would be deemed as the type of person that was in back in those days, somebody who was a bit reprehensible, somebody who was corrupt. Because back in those days, policemen or law enforcement officials were considered to be very, very corrupt. And when I say policemen, really, in essence, you were like one of the Roman soldiers. You were called the son of a Roman soldier. You yourself were a corrupt Roman soldier. Of course, we know that that isn't the case for the most part today, of course, but this was sort of the idea. And so if you were a prostitute and, um, uh, or you were the child of a prostitute and somebody walked up to you and they said, oh, you're the son of a prostitute, then in reality, you would take on the characteristic of that prostitute, right? And matter of fact, we do use phrases today that would seem to imply the same 
same thing, right? We go to people when we get mad and we call them a son of something. And when we do that, of course, the implication is that they are that something, right? It's just a more colorful way of calling them those things. And so this is the way it goes. So when he identifies himself as the son of God, make no mistake about it, guys, Jesus Christ is referring to himself as God himself. Okay, and I bring that up because there's a lot of people who continue to teach and continue to be misinformed in the thought process that Jesus Christ was not Lord. He was some other deity or the brother of uh, one of these uh, angels or so on and so forth. And that's not the case. Jesus Christ, he himself is God. Now, it is interesting because he also speaks of the eyes um, and the description of his eyes are pretty uh, vivid here. His eyes like unto a flame of fire and his feet are like fine brass. This is, of course, a description from chapter one. And I'll spend some time talking about the eyes that represent that flame of fire. It's unique because the eyes can really say something, right? Eyes can really speak to you. You learn a lot about a person's eyes. As a matter of fact, it's sort of an art, even in martial arts, when you're learning how to go up to somebody and you want to defend yourself, one of the things you learn to do very quickly is take a look at their eyes. Where are they looking? If they're looking towards your midpoint, chances are they're going towards your midpoint, right? Uh, it, eyes speak a lot uh, about somebody, right? We have a phrase in Egypt that we use in Arabic. It's called Ain al-Bagra, which means you have the eyes of a cow. Now, if you walk up to somebody and you say, you have Ain al-Bagra, it's a huge compliment because it means you have big, beautiful eyes, right? Uh, my dad said that, would say that about my sister all the time. When my dad first saw a picture of my wife, he said the same thing about her eyes, right? You can see it. There's just these big, beautiful eyes that are embracing and that are kind. And so, you know, when you look at somebody and they have these beautiful, embracing eyes, you can see it right away. You know, you look into their eyes, they're, they're beautiful, they're embracing. Let me tell you something. If you are looking at a person's face and on their face, they have eyes that have a flame of fire, that is not an embracing look okay that means judgment is coming you stand in front of somebody and all of a sudden their eyes go from really really nice to fire coming out of them get out of the way something bad's about to happen right and his feet made of fine brass listen guys brass is something that was used it was termed or associated with judgment this is something we see all throughout the bible you ever heard the term brazen altar Brazen means brass. The altar was made of brass. When they made sacrifices, they made sacrifices on the brazen altar, a brass altar. If you remember, when uh, you look at the story of the children of Israel, when they rebelled against the Lord and the Lord sent out these poisonous snakes that would come out and, and just bite these people, these people would die. The solution to the problem was they had to assemble, build a snake made out of brass, put it on a brass pole. And then as people looked upon it, then the judgment for their actions would be taken upon that. And then and of course, people would live, they would survive. And so it's the same kind of thing. When we talk about brass, brass is also indicative of judgment. So we are talking about Jesus Christ who is coming back ready to do what? Ready to be judge. For anybody that says that Jesus Christ would never do anything like that. Oh, he would never, he, he embraces and loves all things and all people. Well, there's a point in time, folks, where he's coming back with eyes of fire and feet of brass, and he is going to judge the world for their sin. Make no mistake about it. But in this context, he is speaking to people who claim to be part of the church. So he's coming right now as a judge to us. That means this. That means we better pay attention. 
right? That means we better take heed to what's about to be said. He says, I know thy works. So what are the things that God knows? And of course, we talked about this, guys. You could go back to some of the other studies that I've done concerning the seven letters to the seven churches, and, and we can talk about the fact that God has knowledge of our actions. I don't need to spend time talking about that. If you've been with us through this series, you know exactly what I'm talking about. But he says he knows. So what are the things that he knows? He lists them here, right? He says he knows their charity. That means their love. He knows their works. He knows their service, their faith, their patience, thy works, and the last to be more than the first. In other words, these were people who were a serving church. They went out of it. They were a loving church. They were a serving church. They went out. They cared for people. They did a lot of really, really wonderful things. You know, it's funny. There's a lot of people that spend a lot of time uh, putting down the Catholic church. But when you think about it, the Catholic church has done a lot of these things, have they not? They've gone out and they've served a lot of people. They've loved on a lot of people. Some of the most effective charities in the world today are still Catholic charities. So if you were going to use a passage like this to rip on the Catholic church, we could stop to recognize the fact that there are lots of organizations that come out of the Protestant and the Catholic church that are doing some pretty amazing things. And I think it's a good point here to point out to all of us the fact that the best at charity is the church, right? We are. We're the best at running charities. There is nobody else that does charity better than the church. Uh, Think about it. Does the government do a really good job of charity? Hint, hint, social security, Medicare, Medicaid, come on. Come on. The church always does the best. The church always does the best. If you don't believe me, look around. Start looking at some of the Christian charities that are out there and look at some of the things that they do. Look at the, the, the effectiveness of what they do. You know, look at the Franklin Graham organization. Look at what's happening with Samaritan's Purse. Did you know Samaritan's Purse doesn't just go out there and give boxes to children all throughout the year? You know they're building homes? Do you know that they're actually digging wells and bringing water to whole cities? I mean, the kind of work that's happening and the administrative overhead in what they do is nominal. It's nothing. It is perhaps one of the most effective areas of ministry that exist that are out there. So we look at the kind of things that are happening today. The church is good at this stuff. We've always been good at this stuff. We've always been good at caring for people. We've always been good at loving people. We've always been good at taking care of people's needs. That's never been the problem, right? But there are some ugly things that have existed within the church throughout the years. Here's some of them listed right here. Look at what he says. He says in verse 20, notwithstanding, I have a few things against thee because thou sufferest that woman, Jezebel, which calleth herself a prophetess to teach and to seduce my servants, to commit fornication and to eat things sacrificed unto idols. Now, it's interesting because some people are wondering, and this is a a very legitimate question to ask, is there a person here that Jesus is talking about who is actually named Jezebel? Or is this something that is somewhat metaphorical? And I would submit and argue to you that either way, it wouldn't matter. It would seem that if this is metaphorical, uh, or if this is a very specific person, well, we know it's a specific person, but is the rendering of the name uh, a metaphorical name, right? Is it their actual name or is it a metaphorical name? Uh, either way, it doesn't matter. What does matter is this is an evil woman who is leading and seducing people away uh, from the things of God within the church. Now, let's talk about Jezebel for just a second, who Jezebel was. If you remember, Jezebel was that wicked wife of King Ahab, if you remember. And 
Ahab was a bit of a spineless king, right? He, he was one of these guys that was kind of scared of uh, his own shadow, but yet his wife was a superbly evil woman. She was by far one of the most wicked women that we see, perhaps one of the most wicked people that we see recorded in the Bible. And she did a lot of very wicked, evil things. And she seduced her husband into worshiping false gods and did all kinds of evil things. So uh, the picture here that's being drawn is that this woman in this church has been stumbling lots of people and taking them away from their worship of God. Now, this seems like, oh my gosh, what a horrible thing and what a big deal, and this is such a substantial thing, when in reality, this is something that's happening every day in the church today, isn't it? There are people that are being taken away and seduced by all kinds of false doctrine that's being communicated, that's being taught. There was a football guy uh, just the other day, and I don't even remember who he was. I think it was one of the guys that's playing in the Super Bowl today that actually acknowledged the fact that his life was so radically changed by the teachings of Robert Bell. You don't know who Robert Bell is? He's one of the most evil, satanically inspired, heretical teachers alive who comes to teach false doctrine in the name of Jesus. We talked about this. The new apostolic uh, or uh, the reformation that's going on. He, he associates himself very much with that movement. You think about the kind of teachings that are going on, and so people go, oh, man, what a wonderful man. Oh, it's so great. This is true Christianity. Well, if true Christianity means you embrace all religions and all beliefs, and anybody who has a genuine belief in anything will go to heaven because they're basically a good person, that's what he teaches. But this is what the church is being seduced by today. These are the lies that are being taken away. Guys, why do you think I am so much of a stickler? Why do you think my sister, who carries my heart, who directs the worship ministry here, is so much of a stickler behind the songs that we actually sing? Words matter. The theology in those songs matter. You want to know why? Because if the theology is not correct in what you sing, then you begin to prepare your heart to accept that which is evil later. Oh, but Pastor James, the, sound, the song sounds so beautiful. Some of the greatest songs in worship history have come out of movements that are so unbelievably abhorrent that if they don't repent, hell is waiting for them around the corner. And many of those songs are theologically solid. They're right on. But many of them are not. And there are many people in the church that are listening to the garbage, the rhetoric of these songs, because of how beautiful they sound, and we accept those things. I was listening to Pastor Chuck recently, so I couldn't believe how harsh he was about it, but he was right. He was beating up a song. This was a, this was a recording of him in the 80s that was really popular back then, where um, someone was saying, take not thy Holy Spirit from me. Remember that song? You know, cast me not away from thy presence, O Lord. That song. Well, Pastor Chuck ripped the song to pieces. He said that song, although it was a psalm that David wrote, was applicable to David, but we are the New Testament saints. The Spirit of God cannot be taken away from us because he lives inside of us, Right? The presence of God is always promised to be with us. Hey, it's actually a good point, right? 
And so he would go to his worship leaders and whatever the, you know, the song was prominent, the song was popular, whatever songs that was popular or prominent, he'd go to them, he'd say, you're not singing that song. Sorry, I don't want you to sing that song. If you don't believe me, get a hold of Holland Davis. He'll tell you some interesting stories when he was leading worship for Chuck. He'd tell me some stories of how Chuck would just shut some songs down and people thought he was crazy for doing it. But yet his big thing was it starts off with words. You believe the wrong words, then you begin to embrace the wrong theology. You embrace the wrong theology, you go in a wrong background. Now, little interesting uh, uh, catch up here of words. It, it is interesting when you read this. It speaks about that woman, Jezebel. Uh, there are some classical Greek, and I, and I caught this, actually I caught this last night, and I've uh, really struggled with it, but there are some classical Greek translations, there are some earlier manuscripts of this that don't say that woman Jezebel, it says your woman Jezebel. And by the way, the Greek word for woman also refers to, or is the same word, it's synonymous with the word wife. So it could be here, and I'm not saying that it is for sure, but you can make a reasonable argument that Jesus is calling or is referring to the pastor's wife here who might be stumbling. So pastor's wife, watch out, be careful, don't, no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> no, but it really does say that. It could, it could actually mean that. It could actually imply that. Either way, this was a woman who was wicked. This was a woman who was stumbling the body and the body was believing the garbage that she was sharing. So pretty heavy thing here. So they put up with her. They allowed her. And by the way, that's what that means when it says thou sufferest that woman. In other words, you put up with it. You allow it. You tolerate it. And there's a big problem with us tolerating ugliness like that today, right? Note verse 21, and I gave her space to repent of her fornication and she repented not. In other words, I gave her an opportunity to change. I gave her an opportunity to walk away. And her fornication, by the way, uh, might be a word that is simultaneously associated with not just sexual activity, but it could also be associated with the idea of the fact that she has turned from the true and living God and is literally playing around with other religions, other beliefs, other ideas, it can be uh, very much that. Very likely that it's speaking more specifically about sexual activity. Verse 22, behold, I will cast her into a bed uh, and them that commit adultery with her into great tribulation, except they repent of their deeds. Now, this is a heavy thing. Uh, the, the phrase can also be translated, I will, I will cast her into a sick bed. Uh, and so the idea here is she made the bed, now she's got to sleep in it. And that's the picture that's being said. He says that I am going to do exactly that. And notice this phrase in, in verse 22, I, and I just read it. It says, uh, and all of those that commit adultery, right? And then that commit adultery with her in great, into great tribulation, except they repent of their deeds. Now, what was the adultery? The adultery was, of course, the worshiping of false gods. The adultery was the worshiping of gods other than Christ, worshiping gods that were not true, worshiping gods that were fake. This is exactly the message that was being communicated, and it's an important message. I think it's a critical message. It's one of these messages that we cannot escape, guys. We have to understand and know and recognize and realize how critical for us it is to stay on the right path to check up on the word as the word is being taught. Guys, this applies to me. When I'm teaching you the word of God, you need to make sure that what's being taught to you is accurate. You need to make sure that...
to you is something that's biblical, that it's sound, that it's not anything that defies or that, that, uh, that goes away from that which is correct, that goes away from that which is accurate. This is what the Bible teaches us. And the, the Bible tells us that when we run astray from these things, that we go and we follow other things, it's akin to committing adultery. Now, this could also be referring to the fact that these people were going uh, in the name of their professional careers to the temple and participating in illicit sexual activity. This is very much, the, very much a possibility, and there's indications of that basically in the language. But did you notice that he says that he is going to allow them literally to go through the great tribulation if they don't repent? What does that mean? That means these are a group of people within the church that don't know the Lord. Because we know that if you are a believer, you are definitely not going through the tribulation. By the way, for anybody who brilliantly argues that the church is going to go through the rapture or go through the tribulation, that the church is going to be here during the tribulation, if that was true, if the church was going to be here through the tribulation, why would Jesus threaten somebody who didn't repent that they were going to go through the tribulation? Did anybody ever think about that for just a second? And you ever put that together? And I'm getting sick and tired of people who are continuing to say that the rapture of the church and the, uh, the pre-tribulational rapture of the church and uh, the millennial reign of Christ and the church ruling with him is not something that's obvious in the Bible. I'm getting tired of it. I'm getting tired of people who are putting people down who think that way. It does, it's obvious everywhere. It's like day and night. The church is not going to go through the tribulation, guys. If it was, Jesus would not be threatening those committing adultery to go through the tribulation. Now think about that for a minute, right? It's a very important principle here. Very, very important. So repent. That's what he says. He says, turn away. He says, and I will what? Kill her children with death. And all the churches shall know that I am he which searches the reins in the hearts. And I will give unto every one of you according to your works. That's pretty heavy. That's pretty heavy. Now, to be killed is one thing, but to be killed with death is a picture that's drawn, that's, that, that lays in a sense of permanence, right? I talked about the idea of hearing news that was bad about one of our brothers going to be with the Lord, right? One of our brothers died. Well, in reality, he died, but that's great news for him. I can promise you right now, he doesn't want to come back to earth. He doesn't. He's more alive now than he ever has been, just like my mama. I, with as much as my mama loved me and I was her favorite, and as much as she cared for me and thought I was the best son ever, she would never want to come back down here. Why would she? Why would I? Why would any of us want to come back down to earth after we've experienced heaven? Nobody would want to do that. Nobody would. Because Death for us is not the end. It's not permanent. Death for us on this earth is the beginning. Death is where it all starts. That's where it all begins. That's where the best time of our eternity will actually commence. But if you're not a believer and you are killed with death, that means it's over. That means it's eternal Judgment forever. Make no mistake about it. There is no other way around it. No other way around it. Forever is permanent. 
And that's what he's saying here. He's talking about people that aren't walking with the Lord. That's very, very sad. Verse 24, but unto you I say, and uh, sorry, but unto you I say, and unto the rest in Thyatira, as many as have not this doctrine, and which have not known the depths of Satan as they speak, I will put upon you no other burden, but that which you have already hold fast until I come. That's pretty heavy. He says, for those of you that have not learned the depth of Satan, that have not known the depth of Satan, what he's talking about is for you guys that are righteous, for you guys that have taken a stand, for you guys that have lived correctly, for you guys that have not tolerated these evil things, hold on. That's all he's saying. He's saying, all I have for you is hold on. Don't, I don't have any burden for you. I don't want you to do anything additionally. Just hold on. It's going to be okay. I'm with you. Just hold on. And this, this is a very interesting use of language here. If you were to read this in the original language, it's almost like Jesus is saying, it's not almost, it is. He's literally saying, I know how bad it is for you right now, but continue to take a stand. Continue to do the right thing. I mean, think about this, guys. Can you imagine the kind of justifications that people were giving back then? The church of Thyatira. Can you imagine some of the things that they were saying? I mean, they could have easily just walked up to one another and said, listen, you don't understand. This is my job. I have to do this for a living. I don't have any other livelihood if I don't do this. So I've got to go to the temple if I'm going to be, uh, be able to do business. I have to. This is something I have to do. And I've had lots of people tell me things like this. I've had lots of people say, look, I know that this is not good for me spiritually, but this is the only way I can make a living for my family. And I tell them the same thing that I know Christ is telling them in this uh, little area right here. He's saying, and I would say, then quit your job. Walk away from your job. Find something else. Work at a gas station, then work at McDonald's, and then work at another gas station if that's what you have to do. But whatever it is that you are choosing to walk away from, God is going to give you something 100 times better. I know a man that I spoke to many, 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 many years ago who told me that there was no way he could quit working at a bar even though he knew that God didn't want him to work there anymore because he was killing people. He was giving them alcohol on a regular basis and he was doing that kind of a thing and, and it was just, he, but he knew that he couldn't do it. He knew that he, he couldn't work at a bar, but he had to because I had to because of my job. And I told him, well, if you trust God with your eternity, but you don't trust God with your job, you probably don't really trust God. So maybe you just trust God with your job. Listen to this, guys. This is no joke. He quits that day and got a job the next day, literally the next day, that paid more money than what he was making in the job that he was in. And I'm not saying that that's going to happen to you every single time or in every single situation, but I know that you have a God that's bigger than the circumstance that you're associated with, right? I know. I spoke to somebody recently who said, man, a bunch of my clients are, are these dispensaries that are selling marijuana. And I said, yeah, well, they no longer need to be your clients. Walk away from them. Yeah, but that's 40% of my income. Walk away. Walk away. Trust God with your income. Trust God with your income. Persons made double the amount of money this year than he made the previous year. You think about that. God knows what he's doing. The Lord is congratulating the church here. 
those that are walking with God, you have not allowed yourself to be associated with this depth of evil. That you've literally walked away from it. You have not allowed yourself to capitulate to the depths of Satan. Pretty heavy. He says in verse 26, And he that overcometh and keepeth my works unto the end, to him will I give, the po- will I give power over the nations. And that, of course, you know, again, I talk about this all the time. How can anybody not believe in this type of uh, end times teaching that we know the Bible is teaching us because power over the nations, what's he talking about? That millennial reign, that time where we're going to rule and reign with Christ and we're going to be able to rule over the nations with him. It's a pretty powerful picture that God gives us. That's around the corner for us. And he shall rule them with a rod of iron as the vessels of a potter shall they be broken to shivers even as I received of my father. I got asked recently by somebody as we've been taking a stand for many of these things, James, are you scared that you're going to be on the wrong side of history with this? You know, and, um, and of course, uh, they had cited some of the things that have happened in the civil rights movement and so on and so forth. Um, and, and my answer was easy. I stole a line from another pastor and, and it was an easy line to be able to give. My answer to them was, you're darn straight. I'm scared of being on the wrong side of history. That's why I'm taking a stand. Because one day when Christ comes back for his church and the world is judged, I want to be able to have a clear conscience in knowing that I spoke the truth to the people of God, right? Just like it was talking about in Ezekiel. We went over Ezekiel last week, right? I I want my hands to be clean of the blood of those that were warned. I I want to make sure that what I tell you is the right thing. I want to, I absolutely want to be on the right side of history. And I know you guys do too, which is why we should take a stand for that which is right. And I will give him the morning star. By the way, this is the coolest reward anybody could ever get, the morning star. You want to know what the morning star is here? The morning star is Christ. We know that that's the reference. I will give him Christ. Isn't that the greatest gift that any of us could ever have, the gift of Christ? That's a beautiful gift. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. Guys, this passage should be so encouraging to us, shouldn't it? It it, it should motivate us to live righteously. It should motivate us to take a stand for those things which are right. I don't think, by the way, can I just make this comment in closing? I don't think it's a coincidence that we would read this exhortation to the church in Thyatira the same week that God allowed us to put ourselves to be in a position to take a stand with the city. Can you imagine? God is so faithful, isn't he? He's faithful to encourage us. He's faithful to build us up. He's faithful to bring us to that right place at that right moment, at the right time, to say, to God be the glory, great things he has done. We serve a wonderful God, you guys. We serve an amazing God. He's faithful and he's good. And I don't know about you, but I'm excited to see what God is doing and what he's going to continue to do. He's good to us, guys. He's good. And that's the one thing that is always going to resonate with my heart. No matter what happens, God will always be good. 